2: they were, O'Driscoll, oh, Forgan,
0: extra man, is Fitzgerald, oh Fitzgerald is coming back inside, Leicester have another, Darcy, O'Driscoll
2: through the legs, Rob Carney, out to Fitzgerald again, Step and scores.
0: Well, I've finally gone and done it. After a couple of weeks of talking up the English Premiership, I've decided to devote almost an entire show to doing a deep dive on English rugby. We will be joined in just a few minutes by the chief rugby correspondent from the Daily Telegraph, Gavin Mares, who is actually from Belfast, so he has a good insight into both Ireland and English rugby and is plenty to talk about with him. From the strength of the Premiership, is it overhyped? Is it the best league in the world at the moment? We will discuss all that, how the Champions Cup is shaping up. There's been some more upheaval today. And even discuss a bit about England, Eddie Jones, you know, how they're shaping up ahead of 2022. But first, Luke, Munster Ulster. Another week, just one game to talk about. But kind of like last week, plenty of talking points. Um, yeah. Munster getting the job done with 14 men ultimately. Uh it was a strange game. Like Ulster were motoring, then Munster went down to 14 and they kind of seized up a little bit. And you know, even then they had opportunities to win it, but Munster just about got over the line. What do you make of it?
2: Yeah, I thought Ulster kicked a lot. Um and didn't try to keep the ball. I thought like, I really thought they'd try and keep the ball and play, try and tire them out. But sometimes it, I, I the conditions to my mind didn't look great either. Um, but I thought they kind of clammed up a little bit and thought and kind of thought that they were just gonna kind, of, kind of win it at a canter without really, you know. I mean, it's like playing teams away from home is bloody difficult, even with 14 men. Now it was a very long time, and I think um you know a lot of credit has got a monster i actually thought they played some really good rugby at different times during it Uh, i still think there's growth in their game um in terms of being a bit more expansive um but yeah ulster like i'm so, so like again week to week team like how you don't close that out at that point like if they're not looking at themselves thinking what the hell happened there um there's something really wrong. So um, One
0: thing that I was come in there on Ulster and and the kind of a moment that really stood out to me in the second half, and I thought it was very poor game management, was them taking on that penalty from the touchline around just inside the Munster half. Like, that's a one in 10 shot, I thought, from Nathan Doug took it on. Like, oh, the I thought you nut- yeah,
2: penalty, yeah, yeah, they yeah. They nut- yeah, yeah. that
0: into the corner, bleed the clock. Your mall was going well. And, and even more interestingly, like, Mike Adamson, the referee, came over to him and was like, oh, no, no, it's actually two metres this way. I'll let you make another decision if you want. And Nathan Doak didn't even turn to the captain, didn't even discuss, no, no, I'm still taking it on. I just thought that was, the referee even gave him a, gave them an out to say, okay, settle down. Let me put this into the corner. You could <laughs> either milk a, milk another penalty. You could even just bleed more time off the clock. Like That, that kick was almost like, I'm trying to think, like, you know, Fran Stain is heyday putting that over from that range, would, you know, will be and doing the conditions
2: well. just, were heavy, it was cold. Oh, I just a thought it was fine as really far, a bit
0: good. of game management, yeah. I, I like yeah, that, no, that, 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 yeah,
2: someone needs to pull the ball off from there, you know. You're, you, yeah, you, you can't have a like a young lad's always going to have a pop because he has a chance to be a hero. And I did love seeing him, seeing that part of it, but no, bad decision. Um, and I thought their kicking generally like, It was poor, they never really. They never exposed Munster like they really should have. Um, you know, I actually wasn't completely opposed to some of the kicking. Some of the t- – it was actually on to kick a lot of the time, Will. Just the execution was terrible. Um, you know, Billy Burns, I just don't – he just does not do it for me. I just don't – I don't – and I, I don't get the Billy Burns thing. I think there's not enough – like, his passing as well. For Like, if, he, if he's not a good kicker of the ball, if he's not kicking off the deck for you – um, you know he's not a brilliant running threat. like what does he give you his passing isn't even that zippy i i don't i hate to completely decimate him but I, I just don't like it's a game like that where you really show like you know you show your wares as a 10 because a good a good 10 um and he he had good support there at, at nine like he'd obviously Cooney for any portion of the game but he had Doak there who was a good player too like he was getting decent service i just don't i don't get it was no game really. Wheel. Well, there was
0: no stage really where you knew you would have known that Munster had 14. I thought, really, like, is no, it? Which is an
2: indictment.
0: Kind of you would have thought they had the same amount of players. Like, well,
2: I, I thought they kind of, Munster looked like they hedged their bets a bit and, and, and gave up those kicking options to them in the backfield. Hence why I said I think some of the kicking options were correct, but the execution was bloody awful. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was, I was so disappointed in them again. They just, I'd hate to support them. They just let you down on those kind of things where they should be killing the team off. And like they never, as you said, they only went back to the ball a couple of times. It looked like they were putting Munster under pressure there. And it's not like Munster weren't giving away penalties when they were able to have any kind of concerted pressure in there. Um, They were giving away opportunities. So they never really squeezed them. The kicking game was off and you know they were kind of team who who, to my mind they didn't go for the jugger when it was there do you know like i I thought that was like a really good team goes okay like they nearly go up a gear there they like i think leinster's While i don't always agree with their kick everything everything to the corner mentality they would have been doing that for everything the ball would have been in play forever to try and wear out the opposition who are a man down um and I think their kicking game would have been better as well. So look, I think that, that's the that's the growth that, that Ulster have got to get to. Um and they should be very disappointed in themselves. Um and they've got to pick themselves up quickly now in a big week coming up.
0: Yeah. from a Munster perspective, like one player I want to talk about is, is Tig Byrne, another unreal performance man of the match hmm. on his 30th birthday for played uh, you know it could be a tough birthday for some people but he went out and gave a good performance um you know it, again it just highlighted me for me anyway i, I tweeted this as well that like I, I just really feel like he didn't get his reward in 2021 for what was a, a phenomenal year I, I thought from him like in the six nations robbie henshaw was probably the player of the tournament from ireland brown was probably very close behind him he went in the lions tour Warren Gatlin barely used him, and ultimately, it probably proved to be a pretty big mistake. He only got, I think, a couple of minutes in the first test, slightly longer the second test, and then was dropped. And then even for the New Zealand game, he made a huge impact off the bench, but like he started against Japan the previous week and played very well, and then I know they maybe went for a little bit more beef, but I just feel like he, he hasn't gotten the reward his performance has deserved. I don't know if I'm just a big Tyburn fan, but... What do you what do you make no, of help? no? I
2: am I completely agree with you. I, I I feel like as well, particularly at international level, Will, he, he is the he's stuck between that second row and that sixth slot. And I always felt he should have specialized at six and said, Don't pick me in second row. I always felt that about him because I do think uh he's gonna struggle come up, like those two that Leinster back row. I mean, like who are you dropping from there, Will? Mm.
0: Do you know Talk what I mean? Like, like that's his big yeah. problem.
2: And and like he's not playing there week in, week out for Munster. So that even weakens the case further. Um, and I think he's got some things that make him, um, he'd be an unbelievable six for any team. Like, like that, that line-out ability that you'd have. It's like, you know, he's, he has the ability of a second row there. Um, and that's always something that that's a really nice addition to have. But he also has that ability on the ground. So you don't lose that, plus you gain the line-out uh, ability. And he's a great runner with the ball too. So I don't know. I, I agree with you. I, I get it. I get the Ty burn thing, I think. But what I don't get is why he hasn't, you know, uh, you know, specialised. I think he probably didn't do that because Munster, it probably suits to have, um, you know, in terms of their person, or it did suit when they had Stander to have O'Mahony at six. And that's probably why they didn't do it. And, you know, look, O'Mahony's a brilliant line at exponent too. So that's probably why that's all, you know, Come out in the wash that way for him, and it hasn't really worked out in terms of yes, he look he played brilliantly um, all season, but didn't really get the reward where it really counted. You know the the start against New Zealand and the starts in the Test matches uh, for the Lions, and that's my view on him. I I completely am on board with your thinking. I think he's a brilliant player.
0: Yeah, to be fair, like Courtney Laws came with a late charge in the Lions tour and was very good. I just thought that Byrne deserved even more. On like he only got seven minutes in the first.
2: Stop. He had a couple of big runs in a game. That was a, a dead rubber. I, it don't, they bought that. No, that was a terrible decision. How he I got remember it. the
0: match in the first test, like that that they won.
2: But you that was no, it was a terrible test. Like, like the Lions got drawn into playing that crap rugby and that. Um, and they picked him to to play that crap rugby and and it ended up biting him in the ass. Now that decision was a short-term gain for a long-term mistake uh, over the course of the test series. I'm convinced of that.
0: Okay. Well, last thing on the Munster game before we move on. You, do, to... you disagree, obviously. <laughs> no, I don't disagree. I, I don't disagree. I agree. Like they, they, they were drawn into an arm wrestle where, you know, in the last test where they tried to play a little bit more expansively, they made inroads. Uh, so Ty burn is <laughs> obviously better in that style of game than, than Courtney laws. Hmm. Um, yeah, so just lastly on the Munster game, I'm not sure if you caught the, the pre-match interview with Johan van Graan uh, with Murray Kinson RTE. It's gotten a good bit of play. It, you know, van Gran is usually fairly, you know, doesn't give much away, quite, quite dour in his interviews, but he was quite snippy in this one and combative, which was interesting. He, maybe, I don't know if he's feeling the pressure. Like... Uh, it's been interesting. Like Keith Wood was on r- r- off the ball last week, you know, stopping just short of saying Munster might be better off with without him for the rest of the season. But you know, what did what did you make of his kind of reaction before the game?
2: Yeah, it was weird, wasn't it? I think, yeah, it probably is a build up. that kind of pressure, not playing well for quite a while. I think a lot of people are questioning his tenure now and, and, and why he's leaving. Uh, I'm sure he's not immune to kind of that criticism. And I think that probably came out in that interview. Um, but I like the, a lot of the, the, the chat afterwards. You know, I think Stringer was out very strong on it. I thought Jamie Heastlip was very strong on it. It's probably easy enough to climb into a guy when he's leaving, you know, that in kind a of way. So there's probably yeah. a bit of that. But I still agreed with both of them. I thought, I think, you know, Munster probably deserved better. Um, I don't really think he's had a great tenure there. I think he has had a bit of bad luck, but the style of rugby is not is not good enough. They're capable of so much more. Like, um, Do you think
0: there's anything to be said, Luke, for, you know, look at Harlequins last year, midway through the season, they removed Paul Gustard and they went with the rest of their coaching staff in a kind of committee-like structure with, you know, I know there was like a kind of a director of rugby, but, uh, but it was kind of like four or five guys who were helping to run the team. Is there anything to be said for the RFU Munster saying, Johan, you know, you can go on guard and leave for the rest of the year. We're going to go with the coaching staff with Graham Roundtree, who's been signed up for
2: at the yeah, forefront with definitely. Stephen Arkham. Seriously. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a, like, if I was then like, why would you leave it up to the preseason for the new, new, new person to come in and make an impact? I'd be, I'd be searching straight away. Like, hmm. I, and, and if I got someone, I do, I'd say the same thing. i say, listen, you're sorry, buddy, you're off. You didn't, you didn't, you don't want to be here. You want to go to the bottom team in the premiership over Munster rugby. Good luck. Pack the bags. Sláin a while. Yeah. I class. Like that. That's exactly how, how, how I'd be uh, Kind of dealing with this. And I think what it would do is it also give you an opportunity to have a look at maybe what's there if you don't find someone straight away. Um, and because a few of them, I know Roundtree was a bit coy around his credentials and whether he thought he was the right man for the job, where he's going for it uh, when he was interviewed, I think the week before last. um But all I've heard great things about him and I've dealt with, I've worked with him myself a little bit, obviously not with Scrum, but I know him as a coach. Uh, very highly renowned, great guy. He seems like a good personality for Munster. Like he'd be I think the people there would he'd resonate with the crowd down there. Um, even though he's an English bloke, I think he he'd be he's very well liked. I think the players like him a lot. Um, I'd love to see him maybe get a shot at it. Um, but uh yeah, I, I don't know why the two they're like they're they're in situ till, till the end of the season. I'd I'd be moving on quickly with a view to finding someone as soon as possible. If it's not what's in there in place, you know, you probably figure that out in the meantime. Um, and you give them a couple of games at the end of the season when maybe it doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, they get, they get a nice run into the preseason knowing what they need. And they get a chance to recruit some players as well. We're like, haven't, we haven't even kind of mentioned that. That's probably up to someone else now, rather than they actually coach the team. The, the person who's going to be coaching the team next year. So we might get a couple of players like a feck who We think, do you know what? Maybe I actually don't need that. Maybe I need something different. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't see... I, I think there's a lot of credibility in that. Now, look, it feels very harsh off the back of one bad interview. and A team that's not playing well for a couple of weeks. He's got some unbelievably bad injury luck throughout his tenure. But I still think I'd be moving him on. I don't know why you keep him there. He doesn't want to be here. He wants to be in Bath.
0: Yeah, well, it certainly did. Harlequin's no harm last year when they made that change mid season, obviously going on to win the Premiership. And speaking of the Premiership, it's time to move on. To Our English rugby chat, we're delighted to be joined by the chief rugby correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, Gavin Mayers. Gavin, how are things? Very well, thanks.
1: Pleasure to be on with you boys. Yeah, big no.
0: show. <laughs> oh, great. You know, you know how to butter us up to kick things off anyway. <laughs> uh, looking forward to, to chatting to you this week because a few things we've been t- we've been talking about a bit in recent weeks, Gavin, kind of talking a bit about the premiership and English rugby in general. We thought it'd be good to get someone on who's really plugged in over there. But before we get to that, more kind of upheaval in Champions Cup today. Even off air, we were trying to, <laughs> to decipher exactly what it all meant. You know, the the, the, the postponed round two games. So not the the Lens Montpellier game, which was cancelled. The postponed games between English and French sides have been gone have gone down as nil nil draws, two points apiece. M- more upheaval to what's been a pretty you know tumultuous European season generally. Like, what's the what's the view in England on on this tournament at the moment, Gavin, from the Premiership sides? Like, oh. oh over the last few years, you do get the sense that they are kind of looking towards the Premiership maybe a bit more, and that Europe isn't quite at the top table the way it might have been five, six years ago, or, or in the competition's heyday, maybe when Leicester were doing really well too.
1: Yes, no, I think I think that's a fair point. Well, I think there's a number of factors at play. Um, probably the most um, obvious factors: COVID for the last two years. That um, you know, we, we've seen uh, uh, no supporters. We've seen just the joy and the magic come out of Europe a little bit. And I think when you add in this season, when you look at the the COVID outbreaks, the travel challenges, cross-border challenges, that some of the premiership clubs are looking at that and thinking, where are our priorities lying? Are we going to travel with a slightly rotated side? And I think, you know, for me, when you saw Le- Leicester uh, go over to Bordeaux back in, in December with a side, inside, you know, ultimately they won the game, but... Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not the right signal. I think that when you you know we want these big European clashes, and I think, uh, I mean, there's oh, there's, there's we can delve into this deeper, but I think the Premiership tournament itself is is the is the cash cow for the club. So ultimately, it's where the main money is made, and uh, it's a structure there. And at the minute, it is the least risky uh, competition in terms of travel and uh, and getting games on. So I think i think generally i think there's a broader subject of the of european the european cup as we know it losing its its sort of mystique but i think you're right to point out that at the minute premiership is you know i would say for most clubs is their number one focus
0: Yeah, look, it's a topic we've touched on before, you know, that the Irish team sometimes seem to be, and Irish, you know, pundits or fans seem to be flying the flag kind of almost forlornly for this tournament, with the French have always obviously prioritised bar maybe Toulouse, Claremont, and wrestling to a lesser degree, Europe, but the rest of the teams like CAST, sides like that really, have been looking towards the top 14, and now the English seem to be following suit, like and with with all this upheaval this season, you know, the cancelled games and... You know unknowns about how the tournament will take shape going forward it really is on a in an unusual place at the moment
2: uh yeah no, know it is i think um certainly very challenging uh, i think it's probably the english clubs have probably gone been going that way for a while i'd say um that saracen scene was just so good that maybe that might have pulled all over our eyes a little bit they were pretty much unstoppable um Uh, well maybe all the money they spent they 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 had to have some kind of focus outside the Premiership as well but a few factors at play there but certainly look it's been a little bit worrying I know it's like amongst ourselves I know me and you have been a little bit concerned about it Heineken Cup was always you know a massive focus it was something that you really look forward to um you know playing a, a big match against one of the big uh French or English sides and you know it's yeah, it'd be very disappointing if the if the if the tournament did go that way. And I would agree with Gavin. I think um, certainly some kind of it just feels a little flat uh, over the last couple of years, um, and that's not good because this is this should be a premier competition like this. I, like uh, you know, lots of people who come up from the southern hemisphere that I've played with have said they came up to play Heineken Cup rugby um, because of the quality, because of the crowds um because of just the general buzz around the competition so yeah it'd be concerning if it goes that way I don't I I still think it has a bit of lifeblood in it I still think it's the right format um in terms of a competition that we want to see I think it, it has everything it needs COVID has really impacted that that badly I think Saracens is probably another thing that has probably impacted that a little bit too um you know that seems to have impacted a lot of things we've talked about. I'm not going to get into that, but I mean, even the English team, that's, that's had a massive impact on them. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's concerning enough times, Will. Lots of interesting talking points, certainly. Um, and uh, COVID has, uh, on, on top of that, really hasn't helped. So um, we hope that all turns around quickly and, and we get a bit of a buzz back about these weekends because, well, I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a rough... For the rugby nerds, this is this is uh, it's been a tough couple of
1: years. <laughs> I think Cup is the cream that the crown to the crown for, for for me, really. I don't think as well. Well, I think the changing format in Europe hasn't helped. And I know last was well, certainly 20, 2021, it was really enforced on the organizers, but I think moving away from that, that pool structure, the drama we used to have, trying to get out of your pool, getting into the quarterfinals. I think we've you know, you, you tamper with it and you risk losing a little bit of that mistake. And I understand why they've done it, but I, I think the danger is once you change something, you lose a little bit of the magic. And then we've seen COVID again, you know, well, I think with these cancellations, I think we should still have the format as, it's, as it was scheduled originally. But I think that's just taken a little bit of the edge off. And for the supporters, you know, trying to understand what this match means, you know, are Leinster through? Are they not through? It used to be much more simple to work out. You win your pool, second best, or the three runners up go through. You've got you straight into quarterfinals and that and what a weekend that used to be in April.
0: Yeah, and Gavin, like you know, you mentioned I uh, saw sort of some of the factors that maybe is why English teams are, are maybe looking more inward. But, but at the premiership as a whole, though, and uh, it's, I don't know if it's because I've just been watching more of it since COVID has happened, you know, more free weekends, pubs have been shut for quite a while, so there's less, less distraction to get to see more matches, but it does seem to be really humming at the moment, and the popularity of that, like, the teams do seem to mo- get as much of a buzz out of playing each other these days, and the hype that's around it and the style of play at the moment than they are getting from this other competition.
1: Yeah, and I think, again, a lot of factors at play there, Will. You're looking at uh, we, I think, because of COVID and because of the Saracens' impact on the salary sanctions that they suffered, which is pretty humiliating, uh, and, and you know every club now is desperate to you know really stick by the rules. I know we've got an issue with Leicester, but that's an historic one. Um, you've seen the salary cap reduced from six point four million to five million this year. From next year, one of the two marquee players is going. So we're seeing the clubs sort of cut their cloth. Uh, trying to be more of a business that that, that, uh, that is a going concern. And I think we are, for the first time since I've covered the Premiership, we're genuinely seeing a levelling up of resources. And that puts the focus on who's got the best coaches, who, who's got the best tactics, who's got the best conditioners. Uh, and that's, we're now for the first time seeing a variety of clubs coming through. I mean, you look at the bottom three in the Premiership, We've got Bath and Bristol in the bottom three. You never thought you'd have seen that uh, in the last decade. And at the top, we're seeing clubs like Gloucester doing really well, uh, beating Saracens for the first time. We're seeing Wass, Harlequins, really tight, compelling games. Uh, whether the quality is there that it used to be to win a European Cup is another question. But I think uh, I can't remember the premiership being probably as, as evenly spread, as competitive as, as it's been. and. Uh, Part of that is due as well. I think we've seen the the suspendment of of relegation this season and next season. Uh, So there's a little bit more, I suppose, teams can play with a bit less fear and a little bit more creativity. And I think ultimately this is probably going to benefit the England team long-term because uh, I think the days of clubs buying in overseas players for short-term success is over, certainly in the medium term.
0: Mm. look it's an interesting debate that like we touched on last week when we, we came when we brought it up and you kind of kind of came not came at me about it but you you know i was saying how much i was enjoying it recently you were saying well how how like how good is the league really in terms of the top teams competing in europe like there's, there's kind of two arguments like how good the league is you know in terms of the top teams competing against leinster Toulouse, lose wrestling etc and how good the league is to watch on a week-to-week basis i i, I think they're two separate arguments personally like i really enjoy watching the two, you know, two teams battled it out like Leicester was at the weekend, but that doesn't necessarily mean that either team could go and win a Champions Cup either. And I don't think that necessarily takes away from the product overall, personally. Well, but I don't know. Well, what
2: you it could be a better time for you to make this argument after that weekend rugby. <laughs> 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 I see what you're doing there. Timing is uh, if you wait long enough, you will be correct. Uh, no, but on a serious I think it is generally a tighter league. Um, you know, obviously since Saracens have gone, I feel like that's opened things up, as Gavin mentioned, uh, like you've got Wasps winning on the weekend. Yes, Harlequins are excellent, but so are Exeter. Exeter have been very consistent. Uh, are they five of the last six Premiership Finals I think they've been involved in? And, um, you know, they're, they've been incredibly consistent. What a job Baxter's done there with that club. But um, Quinns beating them, Gloucester beating Saris. Uh, you have Bath, who in fairness are unbeaten in 2022. I can, uh, I see, um, off to a great start, <laughs> um, having had a lot, a lot of difficulties there. Um, so yeah, look, there, and th- these matches were all like, there was, is the, I think the Bath and Worcester match, there's three points difference, is the, and, and what, I'm sorry, was and Leicester too. That was the biggest spread of those four matches. So yeah, like, I think the one concern we have with our league is that, uh, the competitive like the, the, the competitive level for for the likes of Lencer like lencer have been able to play a second or third string team for probably 30 or 40 percent of the matches and still win the league at a canter like that's not right either um you know and then some, some portions of our league um you know for the most part obviously there was a bit of an anomaly Uh, you know last year with that weird competition but generally the Italian teams have added really nothing and the Scottish teams have kind of seemed to go backwards a little bit over the last couple of years although the league table at the moment would suggest otherwise Um, but uh, yeah like it's definitely a better league in terms of how tight it is but are they you know like that extra match to my mind was was a bit last year against Leinster like if I was you know if I was pushing your argument um that would be probably the nail in the coffin in terms of are they at the top table in Europe yet um because Leinster gave them a serious pummeling after going down away from home um very you know by, by quite a bit at the start of that game um I mean that was that was a real beating that day um and um, that was probably where my view comes from will um around the Premiership but definitely look, I do think it's, it's certainly a better league and great to see the likes of Leicester now back on top. And just to touch quickly on the salary cap. Um, I think it's a great idea. Um, you know, you see the way the NBA teams, I mean, I know there's a few teams in the NBA and the NFL that, that can kind of work different tax regimes and different things like that, but generally speaking the salary cap and the draft and things like that make the spread of the league. Very, very good. And means that there are different teams that can compete, not always win, but generally compete at a very high level at different parts of the year. And I think it it creates great interest in the league. Um, So that is a great part of the Premiership, and I love that idea.
0: Yeah, I might touch on (laughs) salary cap a bit more in a minute, but first, you know, as someone who covers the Premiership, you know, on on a regular basis, and someone who obviously, you know, you're from Ireland and I used to work over here, so you'll be very plugged into what our league is like over here. Like, what kind of comparisons do you make? Like, how do you stack them up in your own head when you're looking across the table at them?
1: Well, I think there's two points I'd make about, I suppose, the competitive nature of, of both the leagues and success in Europe. I think really we almost have to go back to the beginning where the very first European Cup, uh, the English teams weren't in it. It was, it was um, you know, the Irish provinces played in the original tournament before there was really a, a professional league for the provinces to play in. So right from the very beginning, I suppose, the Irish provinces have defined themselves their success in Europe was the first thing. And, and, and really that was laid down a foundation stone of, you know, everybody wanted to win the European Cup. That was what you define your season by. And the provinces being effectively owned by the, the IRFU, uh, everything is sort of is set up to enable the provinces to have their best chance of winning in Europe. If you look across the water in England, the professional leagues were there from the outset. That was what they were playing in. They then came into Europe, uh, so you know historically you're looking back and thinking, what is your priority? Is it Europe? Is it uh, winning uh, the, the Premiership or the you know the English English League? And I think you go back from that. Then you also look at the ownership of the clubs in England are privately owned. Now there is uh, there's quite a deep relationship. They are, they are if you few now at Twickenham in terms of player release, but ultimately there is nowhere near the same cohesion between the union and the provinces that there would be with the RFU and the clubs. And that makes it much more difficult in, for the premiership clubs to succeed in Europe. And I think you've, you've seen clubs succeed, Saracen succeeded, and Luke makes the point, you know, they were spending money, uh, they breached the salary cap in their own league. But I think... Uh, You know, if you look back at the drivers behind what they did, it was probably to enable them to really go after Europe. And you've seen Saracens and Exeter probably, you know, those are the two clubs where I would think if you're comparing them to Irish provinces, uh, having that sense of togetherness, sense of appreciating Europe that really defines this your status. Um, And I think those are two sort of key factors at play in You know, can Leinster, you know, could Leinster be as successful in Europe as they are if they had to play in the Premiership every week where there are no given games? You've got to play your key players a lot more. Uh, I think that's where the Irish provinces in particular have a big advantage when it comes to those big one off matches because the premiership coaches in the back of his mind, and admittedly, this is the wrong season league to talk about relegation, but if you've got the the fear of relegation at the back of your head and you're looking, or you're looking to get into the top four in the premiership, and maybe you've lost one game in Europe and you're thinking, you know, really, am I going to go full guns blazing for this? That's where I think there's a slight difference in emphasis. And if you add in a couple of injuries, uh, you come off maybe of of an autumn test series, uh, Saracens might have to play all their players the next game after the, the Autumn Internationals, whereas maybe Leinster, Ulster, Munster, Connacht might be able to rest their players and then go hard into Europe again. Sometimes they just don't have that luxury. I was even thinking about, I was doing a piece of Marcus Smith today for the Telegraph and looking, I think he's played five, you know, full-bore full matches since the autumn. And that's England's first choice 10, which, you know, I just couldn't see Johnny Sexton doing the same at Lens. You might tell me I'm wrong on this. I'm not totally up to speed. But the the, the English top guys play a lot more. It's a lot more expected of them um, because they're owned by the clubs and they don't have that same sort of, I guess, overarching rest period. Um, And I, I, I suppose the Lions year as well really underscores that point. If you look at certainly 2013 and 2017, I remember speaking to some of the Ireland players post that, getting a full 10-week break. I think some of the Premiership guys, Mara Atoji and the likes, after 2017 were straight back into the Premiership after four or five weeks. It, it, it catches up with you. It catches up with you in April when you're trying to win a quarterfinal or a final. And I think that's where um, the Irish system really works well for the provinces. And I think, you know, my... I suppose the difficulty with the URC as it's now called with it's always almost been trying to catch up with Europe from from the Celtic countries' point of view, like what does it really mean to win the URC as opposed to winning the Champions Cup? And in England, the balance between those two is, is a lot less stark, I think.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Lions years because Ireland actually won the Six Nations after the 2013 Lions tour and the 2017. So who knows, after a good autumn, maybe yeah, it's on the cards once again. But Luke, the point Gavin makes about you know the club ownership and how much more is expected of some of the players to play more games, it's an interesting point because I know when Leinster lost to La Rochelle last year, a big thing was, oh, they're undercooked. Leinster need more competition in the league. So, you know, Gavin, which is the point he's making, that if they were in the premiership, they would struggle maybe to win Europe... But at the same time, that was the the opposite argument people were making when they didn't win it last year. They were like, if Leinster were tested on a more regular basis, if the if the guys did have to play a, maybe a couple of more testing club fixtures in the build up to these games, perhaps it would be better in the long run. So, it's, what way do you look at it?
2: I'd say Leinster are probably the exception to that. The only reason I say that is probably the depth in, within the squad and the quality they have. Um, but um, I still think it's a tougher. It's definitely a tougher league for them. I think Leinster might do quite well in it. I think the other teams would not do as well. I think um it would be very difficult um you know to to uh, to play week in week out. I think you'd see squads in. I think you know you'd see lots of the things that Gavin mentioned there about you know players your top players kind of giving out at key games just you know having kind of too much to do between international rugby and your your domestic fixtures. So yeah, though there certainly is a bit of um you know i would certainly uh, subscribe to lots of those views um you know i think um it certainly is challenging for them i think the ring fencing will will be interesting to see if it has any impact it's probably the one couple of years the couple of years that it really probably won't have any impact because we just don't know what the what shape the competition is going to take and there's probably less games being played anyway um but um that would be interesting if that was something that stayed in place going forward. I mean, I think there's probably a bit of support for that. I probably think they'd be better off actually expanding the league versus, I mean, there's there's only really two or three teams in division one that can actually per the rules of the competition, Gavin, you might correct me, that can act like in terms of stadium capacity and all this kind of stuff that can actually play in the premiership anyway. So I'm just kind of thinking it's silly that they haven't ring fenced that anyway. Um, but, um, yeah, look, it is. It's, it's 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 certainly a more challenging fixture list for them. I remember Johnny Sexton coming back from France. Um, he went over to Racing, and um, I think we came into November international camp and we'd all played like four or five games and he'd played 17. Um, <laughs> and I'm saying that's probably the other extreme in France. Um, so certainly there is definitely some credibility there on, on, on that one. And, and look, the premiership teams, I think, yes, of course, domestic competition is more important to them i think that's very clear just from a you know survival point of view from a cash point of view and you know there's probably more history as gavin mentioned too which i probably hadn't considered um and and all of those things you hear them talking about it um a lot like i think particularly after they've had a bad game you know it's like what's the motivation if you're if you're really if you've you know got off to a bad start in the competition to bring away your top guys it's just not there for them so i can see all those things i think it's definitely um. Correct Leinster might be the exception Just to reiterate though
0: Yeah Gavin One thing I would like to ask you about uh, it, It's a topic that comes up From time to time on, on you know Podcasts or shows over here And that's the prospect Of a potentially one day A league with the Irish The English yeah. The French or Sorry not the French sorry, Irish, England, Scotland, Wales In one league A Lions League Two divisions Or something like that You know, is that something that's a complete delusional pipe dream when we talk about it over here? Like, is that something that you could ever see happening or English teams wanting or English rugby wanting? Or is that just something that we kind of talk about from time to time as a good maybe podcast topic? Is that something realistic, do you think, at any stage, medium term even?
1: Do you know, uh, it's funny, we were having this chat. um, I was talking to a former England player a couple of weeks ago and we're having exactly the same chat. I think... Well, the key thing is you look at you look you follow the money. So CBC have got a chunk of the Premiership, CBC have got a chunk of URC uh, and the Six Nations. Now those guys want to make want to get return for their money, and so when you ask is it is it a possibility, of course it is because the money men are looking at this and thinking how are we going to get the best product, the best TV deal. Uh, you know, we look at the top 14. I was looking, um, I think the top 14 latest deals, 100, about 100 million sterling a year, a season. Uh, now, you compare that to the premiership, we're looking at about 35 million for the premiership annually. I don't know what the URC figures are, but they will be nowhere near that again. So, you know, when you have someone like CBC looking at trying to maximise revenue, maximise commercial streams, ticket sales, you know, I, I could see people in a, in a, in a, in a, in a boardroom now drawing the, you know looking at these scenarios um, whether it happens or not goodness me I've been following off rugby politics over the last 20 years to know we've been round the houses with global seasons with structures um, but I think ultimately you know the URC have taken a big decision bringing in the South African sides and you know with dreadful timing, you know, we've had COVID impact the travel. Now that I can see the move there is to try and tap into the South African broadcasting market, um, bring in what you know, probably would have been hoped would be more competitive sides. Um, whether that's going to work in the long term, it, you know, it doesn't really look sustainable because of the COVID situation at the minute. But you know, maybe in two years we're out of this uh, for good. Hopefully, I, I definitely think it will be looked at, and I think. Um, I mean, so personally, the one thing I always felt against that sort of Lions League is, where does that leave Europe? You know, do we lose the magic of Europe? You're really only bringing the French teams in, the Italian teams in. Um, you know, obviously they're looking to bring every every four years or so, bringing in a world club competition. So maybe that evolves to sort of a, a British and Irish league against the Southern Hemisphere in terms of the knockout competition. Um, but no, I think, well, long-winded answer, but I think it, it's it's not a pipe dream. I think it's been, I'm sure it's, I mean, it's been looked at before. Uh, it will be looked at again. And I think it's just about seeing, I think everybody has to get through the next two or three seasons in, in one piece. And then they can look post, I think, post-France 2023 World Cup is when you will start to see decisions being made about structures uh, domestic structures and, and global season structures. And, and that's where there might be an opportunity to look at things again.
0: Yeah, Luke, I feel unfair on the South African teams to already be kind of shuffling them off to the side and, and dreaming up a new league. But uh, it's an interesting conversation. And, uh, you know, the European point is a valid one. It's how much further can it be diluted? But then at the same time, if it's already going that way, you know, anyway, is it a huge step to to have a Lions League and then adding the French in for that kind of continental flavor to a European Cup it's an interesting discussion and the point Gavin makes with CBC having kind of a share of a few different competitions maybe makes it more feasible than it might look on the outside
2: yeah it does uh, like I think the real question is whether you'd want to have the Welsh and Scottish teams in there um, seriously I know it sounds terrible but um, I mean are, are they going to add to the to the premiership I don't think so I think the Irish team certainly would uh, you know there's a few of them that, that would have a chance of, of, of winning it I think Um the Welsh team, I mean, Welsh rugby, I just don't know what to make of it. It just feels like it's really gone even further backwards. I didn't even think that was possible. There's a few of them now who are in serious financial difficulties. Um, you know, and, and and Scotland look, Edinburgh, maybe a bit of a resurgence under Mike Blair, but I don't know if that's you know a long term thing or if it's just you know, uh, you know, uh, a short term thing. I don't know. Um, I don't know enough about him as a coach, really, but um yeah, like I think it is interesting to hear them talking about, um, you know, or hear a few whispers in the background about these different kind of leagues to try to change the format of things and generate interest and ultimately, uh, you know, eyes and and sorry, and, and, and euros or pounds. Um, so I'd say everything is on the table at the moment, but the problem is I suppose, and the, the, the thing I'd say people will <clears throat> uh, well, my first observation is like, have we already got that with the cup? That's the first thing I'd say. You know, is that the case? Would they be better off just buying the buying the hide and go? Um, is that, you know, what what they're what, what, what is that already in place? Um, so yeah, it's an interesting time. Um, and yeah, I think the South African sides probably haven't helped themselves with the start they've had to the competition. Uh, we were all hoping that we'd see and and like I think, look, if we see teams playing down there as always with South African teams, I think that'll be a very different um couple of games than what we've seen so far, but they've had a disappointing start to the competition and don't look like they've added much. Um, so yeah, we wait and see how that plans out. Probably a bit early to make a call on that. Um, but yeah, like I'm, I'm happy that people are talking about these things. Um, I think we do need a bit of a revamp of some of the competitions or, um, or not just maybe, maybe it's just a COVID thing. So I feel like I'm wandering around here. I always end up back to COVID and going, well, is this actually the reason why I'm feeling yeah. so down about everything? <laughs> um, but um. Yeah, no, certainly interesting times. And as you say, like once there's kind of private equity involved, they're going to be chasing the the you know the the eyeballs and ultimately the money.
0: Yeah, I think Gavin's point about getting to the next World Cup as well is a good one, and just reassessing then, getting through the next you know year and a half, two years to that next World Cup, and then maybe then is a time to to explore it. Because I do agree with you, Luke. A few things do feel a bit stale and could probably do with a shot in the arm. One thing we go back to the Premiership, Gavin, I'd like to ask you about is the impact Harlequins have had. You know, their their emergence, their, the way they're playing as well. You know, it, it marked difference to the dominance of Saracens and and even Exeter, who were very good good sides, won the Champions Cup too. But you know, their style of play probably didn't set the world alight. It wasn't the most engaging. Whereas you know, Harlequins, the way they've gone about their business, has been scintillating. I know Eddie Jones took quite a while to bring Marcus Smith into the side, but like. I know a lot of the Quinns guys, some of them aren't even eligible to play for England, but do you expect or do you think that could filter up into an international team, that style of play, that kind of excitement, that wit? Or is that just a kind of a, a club strategy that, that wouldn't work as well in the international stage?
1: No, I think, um, Will, it's a very good point. If you look at how England performed last season, they had a terrible Six Nations, finished fifth. Um, you know, really, I suppose since, since their World Cup, appearance the style of rugby it's been really hard to watch uh, they won the Six nations in that 2020 year when we had delayed matches but really it was really sturgid uh, rugby um I think the 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 way Harlequins won that Premiership at that period post the Six Nations really I suppose I don't know whether it opened Eddie Jones's eyes but I think he realized he had to move away from the Saracens model that had proved very successful for both club and country, but also you could see the impact of Saracen's season in the Championship, the impact on the form of the Vunapoulos, Farrell, Jamie George, you know, they, they just, they've taken a long time to recover from that. And, and at the same time, you've had an emergence of some really exciting young English talent. And I think, you know, again, if we're looking at the Premiership here, you look at the salary cap and, and you know, if I'm looking at from an England point of view, I think you're seeing a lot more, a lot more of the clubs give opportunities to young English players, and you know they have the wider numbers there, the under-20 sides coming through. You're seeing um, the likes of Barbary coming through at Wasps, and you know it, it, it's it, there's quite a lot of exciting young talent. I think Eddie Jones, a bit like the cycle in, in the previous World Cup cycle, got to the midway point. And he's regenerating, renewing the side, looking looking in a new direction. And the fascinating thing for me is almost it, it, it all rests on Marcus Smith's shoulders. That You talk about Harlequins, he almost defines the way they play. And the big question is, will Eddie stick with him? The Six Nations, as Luke will know better than any of us, such a different uh, pressure cooker situation to an Autumn International Series. Uh, England go up to Murrayfield for the first their first game. How does he react if he's given the England number ten shirt? There he's been asked to control a game, uh, and you know if that works, and if it, and you can, you can see England did evolve in the autumn to uh, a different style of playing the game, a more exciting style. And I think you know I, I came back from the Lions tour again it was difficult difficult tour to cover and watch the series, but. The Premiership has been as probably as exciting as I can remember in terms of, of, of the way a lot of teams are trying to play. I just don't think it's Harlequins, you know. And I think um, that's, that's the bit where I think if that gives Eddie Jones a greater pool of players to pick from who are uh, coming, you know, uh, coming at the game from a different approach. It's not just about kicking. It's not just about defensive line speed. There is actually a different way of winning test matches. Then I think ultimately England will benefit from the way the state of the premiership is at the minute. And, you know, that a lot of that is down to the impact, I think, of the salary cap on forcing mm-hmm. clubs to back their own talent.
0: Yeah, dude, like, do you think that that kind of offensive style of play that is kind of in vogue at the moment in that league, how translatable that is to England? It kind of reminds me a bit of, you know, over the last couple of years until recently anyway, like the way Leinster were playing and, and people asking questions about, well, why can't Ireland play like this? I know, and Leinster obviously had a lot more guys in the Ireland team than, say, Harlequins would in the England team. But until maybe November this year, when it did seem to finally come into place, people were asking that question. Like, do you think it is translatable for Marcus Smith, say, to, to take the reign to 10 in this Six Nations and and basically bring what he's been bringing over the last you know eighteen months or so.
2: No, he can't do what he's doing for the club. Um, maybe towards the end of the competition he can. Um, but you've got to be able to play a control brand at the start of the competition. It's just it it just takes people, no matter even if it's international rugby, it takes time. For combinations to bet in for people from different clubs who are using different systems, different calls, listening to different coaches. Um, it takes some time to gel together, no matter how good you're because you are, you've only got two weeks to get ready. Um, so generally it's defense and discipline that wins the first couple of games in the competition, first two. And then you kind of see teams evolving as they're playing together more over the over the last three games in the competition. Um, that's always how I view it. You know what I mean? You never see, well, maybe you do. De- God, someone's going to prove me wrong here, but I think generally speaking, it's it's the last two games of the competition where you start seeing your kind of cricket scores. Your you know forty points to thirty five, or you know forty points to thirty. When there's kind of particularly when there's there was kind of you know that that points differential that, that people were, were trying to trying to get in the last day of the competition, it really opened up the rugby. Plus, the weather conditions get better. You know, it's a winter competition at the start, really. So. Um, there's a lot of factors to play that make it very difficult for someone like Marcus Smith to make the transfer over to uh, international rugby. Um, plus, I probably still think George Ford is playing better than him, actually. Um, so I think even though I'm, I never like having a small person in bar, my, my nine is my exception generally, but I never like seeing a small person in my frontline defence. Um, just not a fan of it. I think international rugby, particularly you get exposed because you're playing against everyone is tough. Everyone is big. Everyone is fast. Everyone is strong. And you just get exposed. The spaces are bigger. The game is faster. Uh, if you're not a big person, you just always get found out. Um, you have to be a certain size by international rugby. I think those two guys struggle a little bit with that, uh, t- to be honest with you. Um, no one wants to hear me say that it's a bit miserable because yes, I love watching Marcus Smith play too. And I love watching George, George Ward play too, but Owen Farrell is going to be my selection every single time because, um, I like having this solidity there. I know that he's not going to get bullied. He's certainly not a 12 at international level, but he's a brilliant 10 and he's better. He's a bigger size than the other two guys. I'm not worried about him close to my line. Um, you know, if, if I'm trying to hang on to a lead, a four point lead at the end of a game, whereas I am with the other two.
0: Well, the funny thing you tell about Marcus Smith and combinations is that, like Danny Kerr is probably the form number nine in the Premiership, but you can't see him being brought back in by Eddie Jones. If you had the two of them there together, maybe Marcus. Well, Jones Smith is would still be able... there
2: though. Will like Youngs is hmm? still like you know I don't. See
0: no, one... Ben Youngs has had a really good season as well with George Ford. Ironically, the two kind of ten the yeah, kind of yeah, half-back yeah. conversations we've been discussing there. Um, Gavin, would be interesting to get your insight into Eddie Jones as well. Like, what's been like being over there? You know, dealing with him on a regular basis because. You know, we talk about the selections over here, we debate them all the time. But Eddie Jones seems to be a, a more unusual selector than most. He seems to kind of if someone's really being talked up in the premiership, go out of his way, not to pick him like Sam Simmons <laughs> was the one. Took Marcus <laughs> Smith and Age to get into the team. Don Brand's then, kind of
2: struggled a bit as well.
0: Don Brandon <laughs> then very loyal to his guys, and then he, he dumps George Ford. George Ford starts playing unbelievably. he doesn't want to bring him back in. It, it just it, it's a bit of a roller coaster, I'd say, covering him.
1: Absolutely the right word I would have used, Will. Yeah. I mean, uh yeah, Eddie doesn't respond well, uh I suppose to trends, to popular opinion. Um he knows his mind. And what 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 you would I, I in a way with Eddie, he's um uh on one hand, he is—he can be brutal. Now, I can remember England winning the Test Series in Australia in 2016, his first year when they won the Grand Slam after the World Cup disaster. And he yanked off uh, Luther Burrell after about 29 minutes, one of those Test matches. Never seen a coach do that before. Um, they won the game. So he, he, he has that ruthless instinct to, if things aren't working, and it, you know he, he's made a mistake in his selection, he will write that but at the same time there is a there is a there is a streak with him and that is incredibly loyal to those guys we've talked about particularly you know people I think he puts a lot of faith in characters so like Owen Farrell you could argue 2021 and I know Luke what you're saying about his reliability and his physical presence and his you know he's a test match animal We've we've said a million times but you know, his form wasn't there in 21. You could make an argument to say, you know, and Gatlin didn't pick him for the, the, the big test in the Lions uh, decider. Um, but Eddie stuck by him. This autumn, we have that, again, this third side to Eddie where he's, he's got rid of players who he's loyal to. And he, and he did that And through the course of 2017, 2018 as well, when he phased out Rob Shaw, Hartley, Haskell, and they were they were big men for him in his first two years. So, again, I suppose that's that sense of uh, his timing of when to change. And um, But and I suppose the, the third point about Eddie is just, you know, the the number of players you can select. You know, the biggest challenge I always think for an England head coach is, is being a selector. It's not actually being a coach because you've got so many options you know, we look at Andy Farrell's Ireland squad, we could all probably name four-fifths of it immediately. You know, we know, he'll know who the best players in Ireland are and it's just tweaking around the edges with England. You could pick about three sides and, um, you know, it's up to you to get the right one. And is it, is it on form? And, that, and I suppose that's one of the stark things with Jones is he's never really trusted the premiership. As an indicator of what he he sees as test credentials, and I think this autumn just passed as the first time where he's really gone with form in the Premiership based on what Harlequins achieved last season. And he, and interestingly, he brought Simmons back in, uh, into his into his 23. And he, you know, I did an interview with him just before Christmas, and he was talking about Alex Donbrandt and Simmons both seeing a key role for them off the bench. Uh, in the Six Nation. So, you know, he he's constantly evolving himself in, what he, in how he views players, what his selection process should be. And the only thing is certain is it's a roller coaster to cover.
0: Yeah, I'm sure Eddie Jones, we could probably do a, a podcast on just him alone. <laughs> uh, but uh, so much to sing our teeth to do in English rugby. Gavin, thanks so much for joining us this week. Really appreciate it.
1: No problem. Real pleasure to be on, guys
0: that's all we have time for this week on the left wing we'll be back next week with another podcast and in the meantime you could subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, spotify or listen on independent.ie so until next time thanks for listening and goodbye